0: Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 3 and chapter 4. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of those days, he was hungry. So the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil then led him up to a high place and showed him an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. But Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil then led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not even strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So for, uh, for much of us, many of us, uh, including myself, I wonder, how often do we approach Jesus and His Word, uh, seeking to know more about Him, to sometimes um, the exclusion of really getting to know Him. And the important distinction that is between that, knowing about Him and knowing him personally. Uh, For some, again, including myself, there's this tendency, I think, uh, when approaching the Bible or listening to a sermon, uh, maybe even attending some kind of class, to attain a new level of knowledge about the Bible, about uh, the Word of God, about Jesus. But what might it look like for us to shift from learning about Jesus and instead really getting to know him? Now, I was challenged by that thought last year, and it has resonated with me. The extent to which I often seek to know more about him instead of knowing him. And now today, we're going to be starting a series in the hopes of doing just that. Uh, For the next seven weeks, we're going to be walking through portions of the Gospel of Luke in order to highlight the character and the life and the ministry of Jesus now, it's, it's fair to say that you could spend, uh, you know, 50-plus weeks easy going through uh, the book of Luke. Uh, I've allowed it, allotted myself seven uh, to do that. Um, but since we won't obviously be able to get through every book of, the, of Luke or go through it thoroughly, uh, that's where this resource that we've created has come in. Because what, it's, what it is, it's a way of helping supplement uh, the time that we spend here on Sundays uh, in the book of Luke by assisting you to be able to devotionally read through uh, the gospel of Luke by the end of the series. What that essentially uh, equates to is uh, about three to four chapters a week, which I think would allow to give kind of a slow-paced reading through the gospel of Luke in order that we might have quality time with Jesus knowing and trusting and believing that it's there that we meet him and get to know him best. And in every sermon uh, and in every time that you read, there's really two questions that we seek to answer or to ask ourselves and answer. And then it's in the resource. It'll also be what we address every single Sunday. Here's the two questions. First, how does what I have read or what we've heard on a Sunday, how does it help me know Jesus better? Question one. And the second question is going to be, how now will I live in response to having known him in this way? Those are going to be the two things, the two driving uh, thoughts behind everything that we do on a Sunday. And I would hope uh, for those who are interested in joining and participating, uh, the driving force behind how we read uh, over the course of the next seven weeks. And today, we're going to start this process of getting to know him better. Now, given that we've just come out of the Advent season, we're going to begin our series not looking at the very beginning of Luke, as we've spent the last uh, several weeks in the Advent season looking at that early part of Jesus' life. What we're going to do today is specifically look at the beginning stage of his um, ministry with the temptation of Jesus. Because in this temptation, we see Christ uh, is both two things. He is... Uh, we see that he is connected to this fallen and broken world, that he's he understands the depths of what it means to be part of a, of a fallen world. But at the same time, he's also so radically different than anything in this world that he then becomes and is able to be the Savior that we need. And this is a really important distinction that we're going to see, that Jesus, we, Jesus is uh, like us, but that he is, but if he's like us, but not distinct, then we lose him as a savior that we need. He's really nothing at all. But if Jesus is so radically unlike us, but is unable to identify with us, then that gives us the same problem. He's not the kind of savior that we need. In order to have the kind of savior we need, we need both. And here in the temptation of Jesus, we see that Jesus is both like us but he's also unlike us. And those are the two things we want to look at today. So first, how is Jesus like us? Uh, So in the context of our passage, uh, we have Jesus who in in the previous chapter has been baptized, Uh, and then after his baptism, he's led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit for 40 days to be tempted by the devil which is what we've seen here in this passage. Now, it's worth noting that there's something really interesting that happens in the Gospel of Luke between the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. There is this seemingly random genealogy of Jesus right in between. After the genealogy, it immediately cuts back to the narrative of Jesus now being tempted. And that might seem random, but I assure you it is not random at all. Now, I printed a portion of the genealogy. It was a long genealogy. Um, no need to read the whole thing uh, today, but I just a portion there so that you can get the gist of what's happening. Uh, because essentially, Luke wants us to see that the temptation of Jesus is rooted in one really unique feature of the genealogy Let me draw that out for you. If you were with us several weeks ago, uh, you know that we looked at the uh, Matthew's genealogy and in Matthew's genealogy, it goes back as far as Abraham and, and stops there. But here in Luke, Luke goes all the way back to Adam, to the very beginning of creation because Luke wants it clear that Jesus is very connected to humanity's story all the way back to the first man. And so in this sense, that which Adam and his descendants were subject to, so also is Jesus subject. It was a way of weaving and showing that Jesus is part of our story. Hebrews uh, Hebrews 4 reminds us, the author reminds us that Jesus is not a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but that we have, that he is one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. And this is Luke's way of showing that that Jesus understands the experience of man, that like Adam and all those who have come after Adam and all those including you and me today, Jesus has experienced temptation. And this is how Luke presents it to us. And now again, though at first glance, it might not seem like these temptations uh, are similar to the kinds of things that we are tempted by, as we look at these temptations, I hope we see how remarkably similar The temptations that Jesus experienced here in the wilderness mirror the kinds of things that you and I face every single day. And so we'll get a sense, I hope, of how those temptations might be unique to Jesus. But for now, let's see how they are incredibly uh, similar to the things that we uh, experience. Let's look at those. First, there's three temptations that we see here. The first temptation we find in verse 3 says this. Let me just reread that for us. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Okay. So context of what's happening here. Jesus is in the wilderness. He is fasting. And as a result, he is physically exhausted. He is hungry. He's yearning for food. Of course, he's not eating. And Satan, knowing the weakness of the flesh to resist that which is satisfying to the flesh, he comes to Jesus with a simple temptation of eating bread. Of course, we have to ask the question, why is that a temptation? That seems like an obvious thing. It's natural for Jesus to be hungry. Well, consider the fact that Jesus is fasting here. That's important. It's important that he's intentionally gone out into the wilderness to not eat. Because what fasting is, in essence... It's a way of saying, I am not a slave to anything except God himself. I'm not even a slave to my own physical needs in any particular moment. And as one resists the physical, it shows the extent to which we are not enslaved to that, but rather to another. It's a spiritual discipline that rejects the premise that Satan gets to use that as any kind of influence In my life, because it's so easy to get ensnared by the physical world and the needs and desires of our flesh. You know, what's interesting to me is that the physical comforts and pleasures of the world, in and of themselves, aren't even bad. They're actually very natural. And yet, so regularly, we are ensnared by them. And so, fasting is a way of saying, No, I will not be ensnared by these things. I mean, just to give you an example, you know, here we have the example of eating. Eating is natural. Of course, an inability to control how we eat leads to all kinds of issues, leads to gluttony, leads to health problems that come with it. You know, there's other examples of physical desires or needs that are natural and yet can go wrong when not controlled. Sexual desire is natural. Natural. But an inability to control sexual desire leads to all kinds of problems, lust, adultery and so many other perversions. You know, we're emotional beings. Being emotional is natural, but an inability to control our emotions can cascade into all kinds of personal and relational consequences. We desire to, um, to be connected to the world and what's going on in the world. That is good and right and natural but an inability to control the way that we're connected. And I think uh, in this way, I think much about the way that we use our phones and social media and other forms of technology. An inability to control that connectedness is literally, a lot of research is showing, rewiring our brains to become addicted to constant stimulation. I mean, there's so many different natural things that exist that if we don't control, will eventually take us over become problematic. We become enslaved to them. You know, that makes me think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9, where he makes this really uh, uh, striking statement where he says, I pummel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That he is insistent on in bringing his body under control. Now, Satan knew this to be the case with Jesus. That here is Jesus trying to subdue his physical needs and desires. And so Satan, knowing this, comes to him with just this simple offer of bread. Or the call, rather, to turn the stone into bread. If he could just get Jesus to say, I don't want to beat my body into submission. And I will succumb to my physical desires. And Satan knows he has a foothold. And think about the, the work of Jesus that was coming. There was a lot that Jesus was going to accomplish, but one of the things that Jesus was going to accomplish was having to overcome something extremely physical. I mean, think about going to the cross and the need to see that through, to bring the body under submission in order to be faithful to what he had come to accomplish. Satan knew if he could get Jesus to misstep on this, maybe he could get him to misstep into the future, because he hadn't brought his physical needs under submission. That's temptation one. Another temptation, second one, verse five. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will be all be yours, Jesus answered. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's interesting to me as I, as I read this. It's interesting to me, to me that Satan knows Jesus has a goal and a purpose. Satan knows that in the end, Jesus is going to be this king, this lord, this judge over all kingdoms. He knows that this is what's happening in the work of Jesus. And so because he knows that that's the mission that Jesus has come to fulfill, that Jesus is uh, going to fulfill this purpose by being faithful to the Father, it's interesting to me that this is what Satan tempts him with. He knows that through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus would be king, and yet here he is offering him essentially kingship over the nations of the world. And here's what's interesting about it. The actual temptation of Satan here is he's essentially saying to Jesus listen I know that the father has this plan and this will for you but listen to my plan you know I have a shortcut to you getting what you came to ultimately have there's a different way to go about doing this and so he presents Jesus with this alternative plan instead of the one that the father had laid out for him which is literally the oldest temptation in the book I mean, you go all the way back to Genesis 3 with the first temptation with Adam and Eve. Satan essentially says to them, did God really expect you to obey him and trust him in this way? You know, all that you really desire can be had if you just listen to me. And of course, as a result, they disobey God and they fall to that temptation. But that was literally the same temptation that now in Genesis. Or in, um, in Luke 4 we see him presenting to Jesus. And this temptation is ultimately a temptation that rejects God's commands and as a result ends up showing what is ultimately being worshipped. because what often is the case is that God will command something in order to achieve something else, But it might not necessarily in the moment seem the most expedient or gratifying way to get what we desire. And look at verse 8. I mean, Jesus' response says a lot about how he viewed this kind of temptation. It's a matter of worship because fundamentally rejecting God's purposes in order to achieve what we desire is shifting who ultimately has authority in your life. And that authority speaks much to what we worship. Now, think about for a minute the kinds of things that we typically want. What What are the goals? What are our purposes? What are the things that bring our lives meaning often? I mean, again, they're not often bad things. Things like maybe career success Or having a good reputation or good relationships or managing the overall stress of life. Maybe maybe these are things that we often pursue. And though these are not bad things, these things all are tied to God's law in one way or another. God has something to say about us attaining all of those things in the way in which we attain them. So to give you an example of what I mean, consider career success. It's a good thing to desire but God also calls us to be ethical and moral and just in all of our business dealings. Right? So even our career success in some ways is tied to God's law. Or think about uh, a desire for a good reputation in the world. You know God tells us that we ought to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but rather we ought to see ourselves with sober judgment. And so what's interesting is even pursuing good reputation, does have God's law connected to it in some way. Uh, think about uh, relationships. You know, God calls us to particular understandings of uh, sex and marriage and friendship and relationships. There's things that God has to say about relationships that are connected to his, it's connected to his law. Or even the simple thing of like trying to manage the stress that we experience in life, Those, that's a good pursuit and yet Jesus tells us not to worry about tomorrow, but to seek first the kingdom, even managing our stress. There's something connected to God's word in, those, in that type of pursuit. And here's the problem. In all of those categories, it can be hard to do things the way that God desires because often it's not the most expedient. Satan will tempt us to pursue those things in ways that are not honoring to God, believing that, well, maybe God didn't actually desire us to do it in that way. Let me give you some examples. You know, with career success, this often starts subtle. But maybe the pursuit is career success, and before you know it, you know, there's a a shady deal here, a gray area there. The temptation comes Did God. Really expect that all of your dealings would be ethical and just Pursuing a good reputation in the world. You know, maybe there's a little deception here or a little gossip there that cuts someone else down. You know, did God really expect us to always be humble and gracious? You know, we have to get ahead. Maybe with relationships, whatever that might mean, maybe there's a little compromise in standards here or a little attempt Uh, to justify the crossing of lines there? Because God did God really, does God really understand the loneliness or the strong desire for intimacy? Or maybe the managing of stress, you know, maybe there's a little too much to drink here or a little inappropriate fantasy there, just to disconnect from it all. You know, does God really understand what it means to have to take the edge off sometimes? I mean, in this temptation, he tries to convince us that there are easier ways to getting what we want because God really doesn't know what he's doing. This was the way he was tempting Jesus. This is also the way he's going to tempt you and me. Last temptation here. Let me read for us verse nine. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Really interesting temptation here. This temptation, I actually think, might be one of the more pervasive temptations for uh, us in the West, especially American Christians. I mean, do you see what Satan is offering Jesus, tempting Jesus with here? I mean, he's saying, Jesus, listen, if you are who you say you are, then God will not allow you to suffer. He will not allow you to experience pain. He will rescue you from that pain. And to make it even worse... Satan proof texts that idea by quoting Psalm 91. Verse 9 is Psalm 91. And so here you have Satan quoting a passage to Jesus to try to convince Jesus that the Father will not allow him to suffer, that Jesus would not experience that pain. And I want you to hear, just loud and clear, that it's, it, it's clear from here that, that that's a lie that Satan is using to try to distract Jesus. Satan, tempted Jesus with this lie. He, will, he, will, he continues to use this lie. And again, it's pervasive, even within the American church. And I know that there would be some who think, well, you know, what about passages in the Bible, like Jeremiah 29, 11, that God has a plan to prosper me? Or what about John 10, that tells us that Jesus has come to give us life and that we might have life abundant, Or James 4, that tells us, that we do not have because we do not ask. Or 2 Corinthians 8 that tells us that Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. These are great truths, and there are many, many more that could be said. But all of those promises are promises of God, and yet none of them have any bearing on whether or not you and I will suffer. What's beautiful about those promises is they will one day come true. There is one day when we will experience no more sickness, there is one day when we will experience riches beyond our comprehension, there's one day coming when we will have this abundance of intimacy and relational wholeness that we long for, there is one day when we will be glorified. But even though all of those are true, on this side of eternity, we are not promised any of those things. In fact, on this side of eternity, we are promised suffering and promised that pain will come. I mean, Luke 9 tells us that following Jesus is to carry a cross. Matthew 6 tells us that we ought to not store up treasures here because it's all going to perish and disappear. Romans 8 tells us that because we're heirs with Christ, we too will suffer. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 chronicles about how he was whipped and thrown into prison and stoned until nearly uh, death, how he was lied about, how he went hungry, how he went thirsty, how he had no shelter. I mean, we will suffer in this life. And none of it has any bearing on whether or not God is faithful to us or even whether or not we've been faithful enough to him. Now, of course, there will be times when our lack of trusting him uh, will result in consequences, sure. But even the most faithful the most faithful followers of Jesus, have suffered. I mean, nearly every apostle suffered and was martyred as a result of following Jesus. There have been faithful Christians across church history and even today who experience devastating sickness and loss of worldly possessions and have deep relational discord. And if all of that isn't proof enough, even Jesus himself, the only truly faithful one, More faithful than we could even experience or know, he also experienced injustice and relational discord and, of course, an untimely death at the hands of the empire. You know, the belief that God will not allow us to suffer is not a biblical truth. It's a tool of Satan to tempt you away from trusting God's goodness even in the midst of that suffering. Now, I wrestle with this question quite a bit around suffering, around why God allows suffering. I mean, I don't really have an answer to that question. I don't know all the reasons why he does it, but I, there's one that I think is worth considering and is worth considering in the context of Jesus's temptation. So in James 1, James makes this statement. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Which means that there is something that can only be achieved by going through and getting to the other side of suffering. There is a maturity And there is a wisdom that comes when one trusts God, even through pain. And as I think about those who I um, admire in the faith most, those who have suffered most and yet trusted God in the midst of that suffering, remained faithful to God in the midst of that suffering, are some of the most mature and wise, gracious, and God-honoring people that I know. On the flip side, though, those who believe that safety and security and prosperity are the mark of a blessed life are often the most fragile and insecure and ungracious people that I've ever met. There is a maturity that comes on the other side of trusting God through pain because God desires to show us something about himself in the midst of that, to show us something about ourselves in the midst of of that. And Satan will try to convince us otherwise, that pain and suffering is in some way God not being faithful to us or us not being faithful to him. He tried it with Jesus. He will continue to try it with us even now. So, all that to say, let me just summarize this quickly. Jesus was tempted by physical pleasures, physical fulfillment. He was tempted by... Um, an easy way, a compromise to get to which, that which he desired. And he was tempted to reject God's faithfulness, even in the midst of pain and suffering. And those will be, again, the ways that he tempts us. And it's in this way that Jesus is like us. And it's important to know that Jesus understands and sees the temptation, for he's experienced that temptation. But here's the problem. I can't end the sermon there. Because essentially all I've done is tell you the problem. Uh, I've told you that you will be tempted like Jesus. Um, and implicitly, if anything, I've just said, just avoid Satan's schemes. He's going to try to tempt you. Here's some of the ways that he'll do it. Don't, don't fall for it. But I haven't really given you much about how Jesus is not like us. And it's actually the ways that Jesus is not like us that brings us hope to, be act, to actually be able to resist this temptation that comes. Our resistance is not in seeing how he's like us, but rather seeing how he's unlike us. And here's what I mean by that. Look uh, look again at the genealogy. Uh, let me go back to this. Uh, we've said that it's important that Jesus is tied to Adam. Right? This is the whole point of why Luke puts this genealogy here. Uh, and it's important to know that Jesus knows what we've experienced. Again, Hebrews 4, a high priest who understands and has been tested. However, there is an important distinction that must be made. See, Adam failed when he was tested. He was tempted and he fell. And as a result, sin now enters the world. Romans 5 tells us that through one man, Adam, sin and death have now entered into the world. And this death came to all people because all have sinned. And so the Bible teaches That Adam, because of Adam, and since Adam, we are born into this sin. It's our nature. But what's beautiful about Romans 5 is that it goes on to tell us that there's a new Adam who provides a new nature, and that this new Adam would succeed where the first Adam had failed. See, when Jesus is tempted, Jesus did what Adam could not do. And what Adam did not do, he resisted the temptation and remained faithful to God. Now, Hebrews 4 that I've mentioned several times at this point, and I've put it actually in your reflection quote on the front of your uh, bulletin, it's an important passage for us because it goes on to say this. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, but here's what's important, yet did not sin. I mean, that's the key to understanding what's happening here in Luke 4. And it's key to understanding how this makes Jesus the kind of Savior that we need. He was tempted, yet did not sin. And if if the most important thing that I will say all day today, and this is the one thing I want you to hear from me, is that Jesus resists temptation and remains faithful to God because you and I cannot... And will not be able to change our nature, the nature that is bound to sin, the nature that will always have this proclivity toward falling into that temptation. And as a result, uh, our nature, because of our nature, we are subject to the death that comes as a result of this sin that we are always falling into. And without a new life, without a new nature given to us, we will forever be bound to that sin and the consequences of it. And this is fundamentally what the gospel message is, that Jesus resists sin for you, that you might be, so that he might be sinless, that he might lay down his life for us. This is the gospel. So that now the work of Jesus for you, through this work, you are now able to resist sin because you've been given this new nature. It's really counterintuitive. It seems counterintuitive, but when you realize that you are not capable of resisting temptation because of this nature, the sinful nature you have, when we realize that that is the case, and as a result, wholeheartedly trust in the work of Jesus to give us a new nature and resist this, and, um, his ability to resist this temptation for us, it's then, when we see the beauty of what he's done, that we then become people who are able to go and resist this temptation. You can't do it. Jesus does it for you, gives you a new nature, and now you have the ability to resist that temptation. But even that ability doesn't come in our own strength. The last thing I want to draw out for us here is what was it that made it possible for Jesus to resist the temptation? Well, look at verse 1. Luke very intentionally points out for us what happens to Jesus before he goes into the temptation. It says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, He was filled with the Holy Spirit and full of the Holy Spirit, then he goes out into the wilderness. Jesus accomplished all that he accomplished so that you and I, too, might be filled with that same Spirit. That Spirit that filled Jesus as he went into the wilderness is also the same Spirit that raises him from the dead. That Spirit is made available to us, fills us Ephesians 1 speaks of how when we trust in the work of Jesus, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes and is present with us. And so I encourage you with this, to see the work of Jesus for you and what he has accomplished for you and trust that his Spirit, now as a result of that faith and trust in Jesus, his Spirit is at work in you. And as you trust the Spirit to be at work, Watch the ways that you are able to resist the schemes of the enemy, to live faithfully in response to what Christ has already done for you. Now, as I said, we've got two questions. Before I pray and we wrap this up, I wonder, for your own spirit, your own heart, what are maybe some of the things that you've seen about who Jesus is? How have today has today helped us know him better. And as a result of knowing him better, how do we now live in response to that? With those questions in mind, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are uh, a loving and gracious God who uh, in love and compassion saw the way that we were bound by nature to sin, and how we have been subject to uh, the one who seeks to kill and destroy. But out of your love and out of your mercy, you sent your son to accomplish something uh, that no human has been able to do, which was to resist those schemes of the enemy. For Jesus has resisted the temptation on our behalf in order that he might become the perfect sacrifice And Lord, as we now uh, turn to the table, which is really the reminder of what your son has done, um, we remember that he was the perfect lamb of God who shed his blood for our sin. It's this great work that causes us to now be in relationship with you as your spirit uh, is now at work in us. And so we do pray that as we turn to the table, that this meal would be a meal uh, that would be um, edifying to us, that it would nourish us, that we again might be reminded of these great truths that we've heard about what Jesus has done on our behalf. In his name we pray. In his name we pray. Amen.